Hunter Gall, welcome everybody. I was so excited about this session. I didn't even tell Olara this, but I got here two hours ahead of time. <laughs> my, my, because I live in Africa, my watch has two different times, and I had this one on East Coast time and one on Colorado time, and I looked at the East Coast time, and it was quarter to four. And I told him out there, I said, you've got the wrong thing up. It's our time now. <laughs> but that's because I just love this man so much. It's so great to be here with Olara Otuno, whom I've known for many, many years, maybe 20. Is that echo okay? Is the echo okay? Can we do anything about it? It's driving me nuts. <laughs> um, we met in New York. Uh, it seems like... Olara is, um, I, I always see him in the context of the United Nations. Uh, he is truly uh, an international statesman. Now, we know we have a lot of politicians, but we don't have a lot of statesmen. Mm -hmm. And Olara is a statesman. And um, it's, it's so interesting that the fact that he couldn't go home may uh, and he's going to tell us about that. But it may in part account for why he's a citizen of the world, because he couldn't go home to Uganda. But he is a citizen of the world. And most of his work at the United Nations has been, uh, has involved working with uh, human rights, uh, uh, democracy, children's rights around the world. Now, I could give you a lot of detail about Olara, but we only have about, what, 45 minutes in here or an hour. And just to go through his amazing biography would take even longer than that. But I'll be brief. He's, and then he's going to, I've asked him to fill in the details of his own life because nobody speaks more passionately about his experiences and the things that he's been involved in. When we were having our little preparatory session yesterday and I I had to just sort of calm him down. He got so excited telling me about some of the things that he's um, got ahead of him. But he started at, uh, at, at one of the prestigious, most prestigious universities in Africa, Macquarie University. And from there, he went so many wonderful places, including Harvard and Oxford. Uh, it was Harvard Law School, right, uh, Olara? And um, he's been both a practitioner of law uh, as well as a professor of law. And um, before he couldn't go home, uh, he served in his country's government as Minister of Foreign Affairs and UN Ambassador. And in the course of his life since then, uh, even though he was not welcome in his own home, uh, he's gotten so many awards, he's been on so many boards, he's held so many positions. Uh, I think some of the most exciting ones uh, relating to human rights um, have been the ones in which he served um, with the uh, national um, political, what is it, the, the, your, the one you did with the politics, the, the peace, National Peace Academy. Uh, he has held several different uh, positions at the United Nations, uh, including one relating to children, which we'll talk about also. Um, but I think that, again, I would like Olara to tell you what he has done and 
the positions he's held along the way, because I think they all relate to the topic today, uh, and that is uh, human rights and democracy uh, in Africa. And I would like very much to uh, leave a little bit of time so that those of you who are in the room uh, will be able to ask some questions as well. Um, a few years ago, I wrote a book called New News Out of Africa, Uncovering the African Renaissance. And the premise of that book is that there's more to Africa than what I call the four Ds, death, disease, disaster, and despair. There's enough of that to go around, to be sure. Um, but Africa, uh, unlike some politicians I've heard about, is, is not a country. It's a continent of <laughs> 53 nations. And each of them is unique and different. And um, there's some fabulous stories to be told about them. But for now, let me start by asking uh, Olara, before you tell us about your own personal journey, just give us some insight into the true picture of Africa as it relates to human rights and democracy. Does human rights and, and democracy mean something different in Africa? Are there different standards? Uh, and as you approach 50 years after the end of colonialism, which will be celebrated, I guess, next year, um, where are we uh, on the continent in human rights and democracy? Mm. Was that the most complicated question? <laughs> well, thank you very much, Charlene, and thank you for the very kind, very generous introduction. I appreciate that very much, and I'm delighted to be here this afternoon. Well, let me just begin by very schematically indicating at least my understanding of what democracy means. It certainly is about elections, that is the minimum necessary conditions, but is more than elections. There are other elements that have to come into place. Democracy must also be about equitable access to opportunities, especially in areas such as education, such as health service, um, and mobility within society. Democracy also should be a situation in which, in the electoral exercise, one doesn't end up with permanent losers and permanent winners, that the same group always loses, the same group always wins. If we have that situation, even though it's called democracy, very rapidly that democratic order will be subverted because a democratic system couldn't be sustained on that uh, basis. And of course, the rule of law is very important, by which I mean that uh, the laws of the land shouldn't be applied on a discriminatory basis, on a selective uh, basis, the law should be blind and certainly should be politically blind. So to me, these would be the elements, the broad elements that make up a democratic uh, order. 
that when we come to human rights, my understanding is actually quite simple. Meaning that we should confer on others and we should accept the same expectation of dignity and freedom which we want for ourselves. That really, to me, is what human rights are about. A life of dignity and freedom in the same measure for ourselves as for others. The details can be worked out. When you transpose this to the African scene, here is a picture which emerges. At one level, it's very good news, and there's been much progress. The wind of democratic change that began to blow in Latin America, then went to East and Central Europe, in the end, it touched the African shores as well. So one went from a situation where one party monolithic democratic system was the order in most of Africa to a transition to genuine multi-party democracy. And as we speak today, I'd say most African countries, in fact, have genuine multi-party democracy. You can think of several examples from Botswana to South Africa to Benin to Tanzania to Malawi to, Zim to, uh, to uh, Zambia. The examples are many within Africa. Sadly, there are some very important exceptions to this general trend in Africa. Zimbabwe, Uganda, Ethiopia, just to mention a few. So that development of the late 80s and the 90s was a big positive for Africa. And it fits within a broader global trend. What is also interesting is that it is in contrast to an earlier era where the dominant view, at least the dominant intellectual view in many developing countries, was that a certain level of economic social development called for a different practice of democracy. A managed democracy was called a guided democracy, not the same kind of democracy that you would have in developed countries. Fortunately, this has now been debunked and discarded. It's become clear that people everywhere in the world, certainly in Africa, when given the opportunity, they demand the same kind of democratic practice as those in the US or those in India or elsewhere in the world. The precise form might vary from one country to another, but the fundamentals are exactly the same. So these two elements certainly mark and define the new development in Africa with regard to uh, democracy and, uh, and human rights. You named several countries that have advanced to a point where there is respect for democracy and human rights, and then you named some that have not, including Zimbabwe, Uganda, and Ethiopia. Now, you hail from Uganda, and so I want to just I'm sure everybody in here has some idea of what's going on in Zimbabwe. If not, we can talk about that. I'm very passionate about that one. 
But let's, let's talk about Uganda. But before we talk about the absence of human rights and democracy in Uganda, let's talk about your trajectory, your path from where you were an integral part of the governance of the country and how you ended up uh, as a persona non grata. It's an amazing story. And I think it also, well, you'll, you'll tell us how it affects your own uh, passion today about human rights and democracy. So you don't have to start when you were in diapers, but shortly thereafter. <laughs> It, it's simple, Charlene. It's all to do with mischief making. That's all. <laughs> A lot of mischief making. Um, well, I, I, I was raised in Uganda, and my early education all the way to university was in Uganda. What I think for me is very remarkable is that um, I was born in a village where even with magnifying glasses, you couldn't locate it on a map. It's a remote village in the middle of nowhere in Uganda. But that's not important. What is important is that in this village where I was born, with a little school, an ordinary school, uh, the facilities of which you couldn't write home about, it would be uh, mud walls, and grass thatch roof, and we only had four grades of primary school, four grades of primary school. But I'm completely convinced that I had the best teachers in the whole wide world, that nobody in the whole wide world had better teachers than I had in this little school. They were passionate, they were committed, God knows they were very strict, no-nonsense <laughs> teachers. <laughs> and one of the most joyful moments for me when I went uh, back to Uganda after 25 years of absence was actually my reunion with some of my primary school teachers. Incredible people, incredible people. And to us, where I grew up, teachers were only next to God. Uh, and that was my very good fortune because they laid the foundation, the basics, and one was then able to build on that foundation brick by brick until um, I was able on scholarships to go much uh, further. Uh, then I was very deeply involved with the resistance to Idi Amin. When Idi Amin came to power, all political formations and activities were banned. I was at university. I was president of the student union, which in the context of uh, East Africa was a very important role. But it became even more important because of the Idi Amin regime and the student union president effectively became the resistance leader against the regime. And I ran into a lot of trouble uh, and in the end, when Amin made an attempt to, he dismissed me as student leader, dissolved the student union, and uh, tried to kill me, I then, uh, with the help of friends, I was able to escape. I continued my studies abroad uh, in the UK and in the US. And thereafter, uh, as I was abroad, I was very much still involved with the anti-Idi Amin struggle. 
and was part of the group, the coalition of opposition groups, uh, which worked with Tanzania to overthrow the Idi Amin regime. And I was part of the 30 people who made up the transition government in Uganda. I was then asked in the post-Idi Amin period to represent Uganda, the new Uganda at the United Nations. So anyhow, I have worked as a lawyer, I've taught law, as you said, worked as a diplomat and been with a think tank. I've done bits and pieces. I've been a vagabond, professionally speaking. I've been a vagabond. But at what point did you, I mean, because you were ambassador to the United Nations, you were the foreign minister, and suddenly you were persona non grata. How did that happen? I've been persona non grata from the land of my birth twice. The first one was under Idi Amin. Uh, for some seven, eight years, and the second one for 25 years under the current president, Mr. Yoweri Museveni. We were good friends. We were allies in the struggle against Idi Amin. We parted ways when I realized that uh, he talked the talk but was not prepared to walk the walk. At what point was uh, that? And this would be before the, the transition period, when we parted ways. And then when he took over power, uh, I left the country at that stage, and he blocked me from uh, going back and made life uh, reasonably difficult for me abroad, including claiming that I wasn't really a Ugandan uh, and denationalizing me for 25 years. I didn't have a Ugandan passport. And when I returned last year, I returned without a piece of paper from Uganda on me. I entered the country uh, as I had left it. Without so anyway, I, I, I was away for 25 years without uh, setting foot in Uganda. I, I want to get to when you came back just the other, not too long ago, without your passport. That's a fascinating story. But before we get to that, because I think Uganda may serve as an, it may, may be an example of these retrograde countries that have not uh, made a good democratic uh, transition. So I think it might be important to understand what happened in Uganda, because when uh, Museveni, Yoweri Museveni was elected and he was hailed as one of the more progressive uh, leaders on the continent. He brought about uh, <coughs> stability, prosperity, liberalization of the media. Um, he was regarded in the West as a, as a progressive leader. What happened? I just read the other day about some terrible things happening with the media. Um, you know, there was a point when I was in Uganda where it was um, an example to the rest of the continent in its AIDS uh, work. They had they had tremendously uh, lowered the rate of HIV uh, through a combination of um, organizing government, the private sector, kids. Everybody was involved in this. What has happened? Mm. Well, um, a good deal of that, Charlene, was really well-packaged, well-financed, well-delivered propaganda. It had very little to do with the reality that the Ugandans lived and experienced, which is why after 25 years non-stop of being in power, the country lies in ruins. Let me give you examples. In the northern part of the country, for between 15 to 20 years straight, a population of 2 million people were forcibly 
rounded up from their villages and homes and placed in concentration camps in conditions so abominable that uh, at one stage the United Nations report indicated people were dying at the rate of 1,500 a week. And today, those societies lie completely in ruin. The family structure, the education, public health, the economy, what made those societies vibrant and viable have been completely destroyed. That was under Mr. Museveni. Today in Uganda, a country which had very uh, uh, a network of high quality education from the beginning all the way to university. That education system is collapsed completely. The only education system that has any quality in it today are the private schools which are mushrooming. But the public government schools have collapsed completely. The same for medical service. The level of corruption which you see in Uganda today, which is orchestrated from right on high, from the president, the presidential family, to the ministers and military commanders, is such as I've not seen anywhere in the world. In Uganda, they say corruption wanders the globe, but it comes to sleep in Uganda. <laughs> uh, it comes to sleep where Mr. Museveni is, uh, is, uh, is president. And the level of uh, poverty, humiliating poverty in a land which is very rich and agriculturally was really a leading country in the region. So what you see is a tiny clique of people around the president who are exceedingly wealthy. They've accumulated massive fortunes by world standards. And then the rest of the country living in humiliating poverty. Even the middle class, which is a vibrant middle class, is wiped out. So it's a country which lies in ruins in spite of the well-oiled propaganda machine that projected an image that had very little to do with the reality within the country. But how is it then that Museveni was recently able to uh, change the law in the country so that he could run for a third term and was elected? The reason is because Museveni has presided over a consistently non-democratic system. For 20 years straight, it was a one-man military rule with no political parties operating. Then responding to pressure, and this, by the way, was against the trend in the rest of Africa because this is since 1985, at exactly the time when the rest of Africa was going democratic and multi-party. So Uganda went the opposite way. So for 20 years, no pretense of democracy. Then since, 19, uh, since 2006, the first multi-party elections were held, massively rigged, and all the observers, local and international, recorded that it was massively uh, rigged. So the scrapping of the term limits uh, was part of that exercise. He's, he's a rubber stamp parliament, and he said he wanted the term limits to be lifted, and they were lifted. Mind you, one isn't talking of lifting a term limit after five years in power. One is talking about after 25 years in power. So by the normal uh, terms, five years, this now makes it how many? Five terms in power, going for the sixth. How old is Museveni now? Uh, I don't know precisely. I believe in his early to mid-60s. 
But how could this happen? I mean, you have, uh, as you said earlier, a, a continent where m more countries than not have gone democratic. You have an instrument called NEPAD, which is um, the New Partnership for African Development, which is supposed to be setting high standards that include democracy and liberalization and respect for women and so forth. And you have an international community that's uh, active. How, how could this happen and nobody talk about it or condemn it? I myself am very eager to know the answer to that question. <laughs> um, certainly, the gaining and sustaining of power by Mr. Museveni did not have anything to do with the mandate of the Ugandan people. That is clear. And Mr. Museveni has been openly contemptuous of Ugandan public opinion, or for that matter, African peer public opinion. Has he signed the peer review process? Peer review? Uh, it has started in Uganda, and Uganda didn't do very well. But this is very recent. The peer review exercise is very recent. The source of legitimacy, and this is an important point, the source of legitimacy and the staying power of, Ms. of Mr. Museveni has depended on one factor, the support and sponsorship of the international community. That has been the basis of his legitimacy and staying in power. He's accountable to the international community, to the donors who have been bankrolling his regime, and in no way cares for the opinion of the local people or African public opinion. Now, this is, this is a contradiction, because in any democracy, surely, the first order of accountability is to the local population, those who are supposed to elect and provide the mandate. If we're in a situation in which a leader is hailed as being democratic and an example, a new breed of African leaders, where the source of legitimacy depends entirely on perception abroad, something is fundamentally wrong. Now, fortunately, those who supported him for many years, especially the Western capitals, they have now began to see through and began to see who Museveni really is. It's 25 years, very, very late. And the Ugandan people have paid a very stiff price for this. But at least now, it is plain for all to see who Museveni really is. But this also illustrates with another point. There are leaders who begin off meaning well and lose their way. But there are leaders who begin off from the start as fraud, from the very beginning. And Mr. Museveni falls in that category. Even if he was able to package and project an image, that bought him a lot of time, a lot of resources, and a lot of goodwill internationally. Yeah, but that's been for a lot. That's been how many years? How, how could well, he live a lie part, like that and nobody call him out? Well, that's exactly what I want to know. I want to know how in uh, a world which is supposed to be very open, a world in which information goes to and fro, how could the situation one is describing in Uganda exist and international media would not expose it and democratic governments would not take a stand on the issue? In fact, all his support has been coming from 
democratic Western governments, and Western media. So we have here a conundrum that we need to solve. There is something here which is not right. And you propose to make it right by running for president against Mr. Museveni. Tell us about that. Well, my life has turned upside down in short order. Uh, it was not in my plans. It hasn't come in sort of a, a usual route. But last year, I was approached by a group of Ugandan leaders and elders urging me to agree to go back and to help to lead a movement to effect change in Uganda and to change what I've been describing, which has been happening in the country. Uh, this was something very new for me, and uh, I was naturally very hesitant. It took a certain period of time of discussion and meetings. And to cut a long story short, in the end, uh, I reflected, agonized, and I said, yes. It was not an easy yes, probably the most difficult yes I've said in my life, but it was a yes in the end. And since making the decision, I'm comfortable, I'm at peace with the decision, even as I encounter enormous challenges along the way. But in the end, to me, really, it was one, I, I did go on a kind of a brief homecoming, and what I saw of the condition of the people, of the state of the country, broke my heart. Uh, it Tell was, us just a little I, about that. Well, uh, you know, just the, the incredible humiliation that the people have gone through, the unbelievable suffering uh, that they have gone through, the abuse of human rights, the fact that they are completely at the mercy of the government and the authorities with no recourse whatsoever, the genocide in the northern part of the country, uh, it broke my heart. Now t tell us and, a little uh, bit about that because I'm not sure everybody knows about that. Well, in, um, very briefly really, in, in, in northern Uganda, um, two forces have been at work. One is the government forces, Mr. Museveni, who went to the villages and rounded up the entire population, some two million people, placed them in 200 camps, and imposed the most abominable conditions. Those who lived the, the, the shortest in the camps, they stayed for 15 years. Most of the population stayed for 20 years. Then there was the LRA, the Lost Resistance Army, about which we know a good deal more, a kind of really ragtag uh, rebellion uh, that provided a wonderful cover and pretext for Mr. Museveni to commit the genocide in the camps. Um, and the LRA, for its part, committed its own atrocities, abducted children, and so on. So these thousands two were killed, right? And thousands of people. Uh, the, the, yes, there were a lot of atrocities committed by both the LRA and the government, but the, the, the most enduring, the most abominable uh, episode really was what happened in the camps over 15 to 20 years. So anyhow, I went back to Uganda, saw the condition of the people, heard them, witnessed what was going on, and it became clear to me that I couldn't observe this from a distance. 
after all, this is the society which made me who I am, for better or for worse. Uh, I was born there, I was formed there, this society raised me, uh, and I felt it was some small way of giving back, I owe this to the people of Uganda. But also, I've done most of my work in this country and internationally. I've been very much engaged in the development and promotion of certain principles and values of democracy, of human rights, of good governance. And seeing what was happening in my land of birth, I said, well, maybe I should simply dirty my hands, go into that little theater and see what it looks like to be engaged there trying to apply these principles and these uh, values. Also because for me, I've been very concerned about the future of Africa. And it seems to me that in this one place, one could try out a paradigm, a model, see how it works, and hopefully if it works reasonably well, it may have its influence much broader than within Uganda. So for those reasons, I decided to say yes, and I'm now fully engaged. I'm associated with a party, a social democratic party called the Congress Party. Same formation from the same piece of timber like the Congress of South Africa, the Congress of India, or from that era and that ideological orientation. We've had our primaries within the Congress Party. Uh, we had seven, eight candidates, and I was fortunately elected the president of the party and the party's presidential uh, nominee. Uh, the chances are what we are heading towards is a two-way race, essentially, between Mr. Museveni, the incumbent, and myself. You make it sound relatively easy. I mean, you, <laughs> you thought about this. Then I've misstated something. You, you, you thought about this. You thought it would be a good thing to do at this point in your life. But just tell everybody about the price <coughs> your family paid for being related to you. The fact that when you went back this time, you didn't have a passport. You had to take a stand to get into the country. And you went to find the place where your family lived, and you found bushes. Tell us what sacrifice the Otuno family paid for your activism. And, and that will help us understand the challenges that you face going back. Well, as, as I think you would understand, this has been a subject of very difficult discussion within my family, very controversial and very divisive. And my family is in open revolt over my decision to go back to Uganda because they understand the conditions there, uh, but also because in the Idi Amin period, as well as during this current regime, uh, the family has had some episodes of, uh, of suffering. We, two of my brothers were assassinated in, in Uganda under the current regime, and uncles and relatives killed during Idi Amin time, including Archbishop Janan in the womb. Um, so yes, the family's had some uh, difficult, uh, difficult time, and so obviously they're deeply concerned. Um, but 
in the end, I, I took all that into account, but decided I had to do this. Is it easy? Well, it's anything but that. And I would not be honest if I said this decision came easily. It didn't. It was a very difficult thing for me to decide. Probably the most difficult decision I've had to make. Uh, but in the end, I made it. In the end, the, the, the answer was yes. Now, as we speak, there are enormous challenges, even as I feel confident that it is possible to carry forward and to successfully prosecute this project. But the challenges are enormous. First of all, we have to compel a situation in which the current president will be left with no option but to hold free and fair elections. Left to his own devices, the elections like previous ones will be massively rigged, will be fraudulent. So we must have a two-pronged approach which mobilizes from within the country enormous political pressure, but also political pressure from outside. And the two combined sources of pressure compel free and fair elections. That's very important. And you, you, you did with the, you've gotten the United States government, the, the Congress, well, to agree to do, put some pressure. How did you do that? What is it? Well, the, 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 the United States Congress, uh, to its credit, has taken a position on the issue of free and fair elections in Uganda. In the legislation, the appropriation bill for this year is attached to what is called U.S. Congressional Directive on Free and Fair Elections in Uganda, which directs the Secretary of State to monitor the entire process of preparing for elections in Uganda and to report to Congress at regular intervals about that process and whether the process and the outcome is free and fair. So not just this the election is, period, but the this whole is the entire process. process. Yeah. This is very important and a very big deal, and I'm very happy that the U.S. Congress has taken a stand on this. That was your initiative. Um, well, certainly I canvassed and, uh, you know, uh, pushed the idea and uh, tried to convince uh, members of Congress that this was an important thing for the U.S. to take a stand on a, a, on a bipartisan basis. And we are very happy that this has happened. It's made a big difference in Uganda. And also there are many democracy-promoting institutions in Washington, D.C., the IIR, the NDI, National uh, Endowment for Democracy, Freedom House, IFES, and we've been trying to get all of them to get really engaged and involved in monitoring and reporting on what is happening in Uganda. So the issue of how one proceeds to ensure that the elections are free and fair, critical, very, very important. Secondly, there's of course the issue of Personal security uh, is a, it's a very it's a murderous political jungle. And in my particular case, uh, it takes on a particular uh, age because the source of insecurity, the source of potential mischief is predominantly the state itself. Uh, that is what I've got to watch over my shoulders over. 
so one has to obviously be concerned about that and provide some way to take care of that. Do you have a way and to then, do that? Um, and then do you have a way to do that? <laughs> I mean, you don't have to give away the secrets. But, no, no, there, I mean... there are no secrets here. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, it means I have to find some... Uh, I'm a private citizen. The state is the one that wants to, to get uh, to do me in. So, obviously, I have to find some private ways to provide uh, some measure of uh, personal security, some measure of protection. Uh, yeah, so that's what I have to... Do in December last year, as some of you may know, there was uh, an attempt to assassinate me. Uh, by the grace of God, I uh, we survived. In fact, I believe that it was. This is uh, of some interest. I believe that it was the presence of a white American in my car that saved our lives, because we're traveling on a road, and clearly our movement was being monitored and there's a convoy of very heavy military trucks moving very, very, very slowly at a snail pace. And we trailed behind the convoy for some time, then it waved us on, they waved us on. And two cars not belonging to my convoy went ahead. We then proceeded to, to bypass the convoy. We cleared two cars, two, two trucks. The third truck suddenly cut in front of us and the idea was that our car would then move headlong into this heavy military truck. The driver, uh, bless him, was able to, you know, successfully move to the right. We hit the embankment, so we moved back on the main road. A second truck came in, we were sandwiched between the two, and we then escaped in the bush. But once we came to a screeching halt in the bush, a group of soldiers from this convoy then descended on us with their guns cocked, some 40 soldiers or so. But when they came, calling my name as they approached us, and I hadn't come out of the car, so obviously they knew I was in that car without me coming out. Then as they arrived at the car, they saw this um, white person in our car. And whatever Museveni may be, he knows which side of his bread is buttered. And he, he would know he could do anything with other passengers Minus this white person in the car, mm. because the country from which that white person comes would follow this matter, would hold him accountable. So I believe this fellow, who we, we, we gave him a ride at the last minute. So anybody monitoring us, <laughs> anybody monitoring our movement wouldn't have known he was in this car. And I, my, I myself think it was his presence. Mm. For tweeters, his mm. presence in our car. That saved our lives. So the issue of personal security is very is, is quite uh, serious. In Uganda, the, the regime tends to use stage road accidents, stage robbers and criminals attacking you, poisoning, uh, etc. The other issue, of course, is that we have a situation where the regime has been so corrupt that all the resources in the country, taxes, foreign aid, the loot from the Congo is all commingled into one part which serves as a personal ATM machine for the president. So the regime has tons and tons of money, part of which he uses to immobilize the opposition, to overwhelm the opposition. So politics has been highly monetarized 
So do you Highly have any money? money oriented. Do you have money to run this campaign? I was hoping that you <laughs> might get some of that for me. <laughs> Listen, I, I want to get us to uh, some questions in the audience, and we don't have much time, but just very quickly, I think one of the things that you told me about your um, pre the, the trips that you've made into the uh, region um, may be part of your salvation in the security area, the reception that you've gotten from the people. Just briefly tell us so that we can get at least two or three questions from the audience. Well, obviously, I've been away from the country for a very, very long time. So I feel a little bit uh, like a New Yorker who is carpet-bagging in Uganda. <laughs> um, but it's gratifying that when, when I go outside of the capital, I go to the villages, I go to the local communities, it is as if I had not left Uganda. Uh, it's very reassuring for me. But also the way in which they have received me has been very heartwarming. Uh, obviously, they came knocking on my door. They knew I lived away a long time, but they remember some of the things I did before, including during the Idi Amin period. And they have been following a little bit my activities uh, internationally. Uh, and politically, the response is exceedingly good because I have been speaking about reuniting the country in a situation in which the current regime has fragmented the country, divide and rule policy. Along I've ethnic lines. Ethnic lines. People are responding to this. Mm -hmm. I've been speaking about the government again placing ordinary people front and center of its business so that there can be delivery of uh, services, quality education, medical service, and so on. And this is linked to corruption because if there is galloping corruption as it is today, you can't provide these services. So we've got to tackle corruption and then make the state perform its traditional functions uh, and obviously trying to resuscitate the institutions which have been completely gutted and which have been destroyed. You can't develop a country without institutions, without procedures, without processes. Um, yes. And we're going to make our questions brief, aren't we, so that we can brief, get brief a lot question. in here. Mark Nathanson. Thank you. Uh, first of all, as Americans, how can we help you in your noble task and really risking your life to go back. And would, if you have time, clarify the situation that we've read in the papers about the reprehensive activities of the government toward homosexuality oh, in the country. Maybe you can go in the car with him when he goes back. <laughs> <laughs> Make it brief so Well, can just, just, yes, just, just very quickly, first on the, um, the, the proposed legislation against uh, homosexuals and homosexuality. The, the president for many years has been making very incendiary remarks and statements about homosexuals and homosexuality. This is what has inspired one of his supporters who is very close to him to then go to parliament under guise of a private bill to introduce a legislation which, in effect, legislates what the president has been saying uh, in his rhetoric. Uh, this has no uh, major support within, within Uganda. Uh, and, I, and I believe in the end, partly because of opposition within Uganda, but also partly because this has got to be known internationally 
and a lot of international pressure has come to bear, I don't believe this bill will pass. Quickly, tell them, tell them how, how they can help, because they've got four people I've promised to ask questions. Um, well, but I know you I think, want this answer. I think, I, think, I think there are several ways. One, of course, is how to bring pressure and spotlight to ensure free and fair elections, both official Washington, but also public opinion and the media. Uh, two, it so happens, as I said earlier, that because of the repression and reprisals, it's very difficult for the opposition to mobilize resources for campaign within Uganda. Very difficult. So they have to rely on what they can mobilize from outside to, to face the, uh, the, the regime. And so, yeah, those are ways in which... Uh, Will you have uh, uh, places through where people can support financially? Yes, they're, 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 How would they find out no, no, about they're, those? They're, they're, there are arrangements that, uh, yes, that, there are ways in which they can do that. Yes, you want course. to tell them now? Uh, well, <laughs> don't wait. Well, I, I, I mean, certainly I would be very grateful if there, if there are persons who feel able to contribute to this course to, to see me later, and it would be exceedingly uh, welcome. Okay. But, but let me just say w w one, one word, though, why um, even though this is happening in Uganda, it is perhaps not insignificant for America and Americans. Since we're the Aspen Ideas Festival, I mean, certainly the idea of promoting democracy, the idea of entrenching human rights, the idea of establishing good governance that can make a difference to the lives of ordinary people is something which I hope would be of interest beyond Uganda, be of interest globally. Secondly, Uganda is a relatively small country, but it's been punching above its weight because of its location. Uganda, as many of you may know, is next to southern Sudan, which next year in all likelihood will declare independence. Uganda is next to this big behemoth, the Congo, which has been very unstable. Uganda is next to Rwanda and had a lot to do with both the genocide, the aftermath of the genocide and the current ongoing conflict, not to mention Kenya. Uh, so Uganda's uh, role, stability in Uganda, democratic order in Uganda is not, of, uh, is not insignificant. And the U.S. in those contexts has got some major geopolitical interest in the area. And then, again, as some of you may know, our friend oil has been discovered in Uganda. This is very recent, uh, and it's a big deal. And certainly, it's going to matter what kind of regime presides over the exploitation, the use of these resources, whether for the benefit of the ordinary people or to entrench corruption even further, whether to have the right kind of companies involved in it or sweetheart deals behind the scene, all this is going to be quite important. And by the way, one of the things I forgot to mention when I was saying, talking about some of his credentials, he's also a trustee of the Aspen Institute. Now we have a question there. You, you're, yeah, uh, Pat, and then that those two gentlemen. There's a lady there. There's a lady there. And if time, I'll come back to you. Big pardon. Okay, uh, those of you who have to leave, but let me just take maybe two more okay. questions. Uh, How about the Pat, one, Pat? Pat, Pat Ellis. Um, 
Uh, Olara, what's it going to be like trying to campaign, given what you described, and what kind of support have you gotten throughout Africa from other countries? Obviously, you can't have officials coming out for you, but what about, you know, colleagues throughout the continent? The, um, a number of African countries, because they know what's happening in Uganda, they are very supportive, but of course they have to be exceedingly discreet because of if you could uh, leave quietly, Mr. those Mr. who want to stay can um, stay, but leave, those who want to leave, leave, but do it quietly, and we're going to have to stay after school for running over time, but we've been given permission to do that. I, I think... Yeah, I'm just saying if they could leave quietly. Okay, very quickly. So I'm saying that, um, uh, but, but they have to be very, very discreet because of Mr. Museveni's uh, terrorist uh, tactics in the neighborhood. Uh, within the country, one campaigns uh, mainly moving in a car on the roads from one village to another. Just before coming here for the festival, I'd spent four weeks uh, moving in the Ugandan countryside in the greater north of the country. Previously, I'd spent a similar period in the east and the west and the center. So that's the main method by which one campaigns. Now, the government has tried to place a complete media blackout on me and my activities so that I don't exist and what I say do not exist. Uh, and we're trying to see ways by which one might get out from beneath this uh, media uh, blackout. Sorry, maybe just one more question because we have pushed the envelope here. Go ahead. My name is Vikram Raghavan. I work at the World Bank on conflict and fragility. I want to thank you for your service to the international uh, community as well as uh, for the cause of human rights. Uh, my question is... And, and also for inspiring international civil servants to go back home and make a difference, and I think that's really great. My question is uh, as follows. Who are your allies internally within the country? Uh, can you count on uh, civil society groups? Can you count on lawyers like in Pakistan? Mm. Or the judiciary? I was, despite all the stuff about the, the homosexuality bill, which I find atrocious, I was very pleased to learn recently that the Ugandan Supreme Court has outlawed uh, discrimination against two lesbians and has held unconstitutional death by hanging. And uh, that seems to be a silver lining. And are those uh, judges or lawyers potential allies for you in your campaign? Thank mm -hmm. you. I very, think this very, might be the last thing. Very, very quickly, even though Mr. Museveni has worked very hard to divide the population along ethnic and regional lines, as I said earlier, the people are in fact responding very well to my message about reuniting the country, about building a common destiny within a diverse polity, but a common destiny. Which means that when you explain and when you show what is going on, people will see through. Uh, and so the response is coming from across the country, from the center, which has been a big base of support for Museveni, again on divide and rule. We are the south, you are the north, we are the west, you are the East, and that is now crumbling. Huh? Two, the ordinary people I find in the villages are more willing to put their necks on the line. More than the intelligentsia. There are exceptional individuals within the intelligentsia. But in all honesty, I have to say, on the whole, they tend to be more timid uh, than the ordinary people in the countryside. The other institutions, civil society, 
weak relative to say Kenya, very weak. Uh, the professions, the lawyers, uh, in terms of political engagement and taking a stand, relatively weak. The judiciary, there are exceptional individuals here and there, like the principal judge, for example, who's really taken a very courageous stand at various stages. I can't say that of all the judges. Uh, in fact, I can say that, well, I'll stop at that. I can't say that of all the judges. <laughs> so so the, the, there are many allies. There is a preponderance of support for what I and the opposition is offering. And I have no doubt whatsoever in my mind that if we are able to create a situation where there are free and fair elections, I have no doubt whatsoever that the popular will will prevail and that the current regime will be thrown out. I have no doubt about that. But we have to create the conditions in which the vote of the ordinary Ugandans will count. We are just right now in the process of preparing that, and I will make that available as soon as it's ready. I promise okay. one more question, and honest to God, that's it. Yours quickly, and then I want to say one quick thing, and then that's it. Sorry. Uh, hurry up. Um, actually, I had two related questions. Um, first one of all, question, please. One. Okay. Okay. As you know, uh, this is the question. We have to get to the question. Yes. This is a man whose constituency is the military. How do you expect to, even when you win the election, if he says no, what are you, you going to do? Mm. My, my approach is the following. Mr. Museveni has tried to build a military formation as a personal Praetorian Guard. And he refers to the army as my army, my military, my commanders and they will protect me. In spite of that rhetoric on his part, I regard the military as consisting of sons and daughters of Uganda, who are there partly because they need a job and employment, partly because they want to serve their country. I have no quarrel with the military. And I'm convinced that if the moment came in which the popular will was expressed, and Mr. Museveni said, you must help me to subvert this uh, will. I'm convinced some of the commanders who have benefited from the corruption, the loot in the Congo, they will side with him. But I'm convinced that the bulk of the military, the ordinary sons and daughters of Uganda who are serving in the military, they'll stay in the middle. They will not take on their own people and shed their blood. There will be no doubt at the beginning probably some nasty stuff, but I'm not, I'm convinced that they would do the right thing. Well, Olaro Tuna, I want to thank you so much. And I think that, <laughs> I, I, I think that you can count on one, one uh, very prominent American who made his, his first speech uh, on the continent of Africa in Ghana. And he said that Africans on the right side of history can count on U.S. support. So if you've got the number to the White House, it's time to make that call. Thank you all. <laughs>